Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from the Wesley Foundation, improving the lives of California's children and youth at risk. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected, on the web at theschmidt.org. On today's California Report magazine, we meet a kayaker trying to make a childhood dream come true with the help of technology. Hello. Hello. Hi. I am on a kayak on a lake. I hear a street on my right. Can you see the street? And a new documentary about a man who can't speak, but who put California on the map as the birthplace of the disability rights movement. He's been a silent hero for all these years, and I really think, you know, it's about time people know who he is. Plus, we visit a marigold farmer getting ready for Day of the Dead. We've got your weekly road trip for the ears to meet the people and visit the places that make California unique. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. We start our show with a man on a mythological mission. His name is Ahmed Ustinel. He lives in San Francisco, and he has a dream. He wants to return to his homeland of Turkey and take a big journey on a tiny kayak across the Bosphorus Strait, one of the busiest shipping channels in the world. Think enormous freighters and his little human-powered boat. But as the California Report's Laura Clivens tells us, he faces a unique challenge that will make it much harder for him. Ahmed Ustinel grew up in Istanbul, which straddles the Bosphorus Strait. So I was always close to the water. You know, I uh, grew up on a fishing boat, fishing with, uh, with my dad. When he was a teenager, Ustinel was on the ferry a lot. He lived on the Asian side of the strait, and his high school was on the other side, in Europe. After boarding the ferry, Ustinel liked to buy tea and sesame bread and take it outside on the deck. He'd stand at the railing, feeling the spray of the water on his face and listening for nearby boats. Ustinel has been blind since he was three years old. And I used to think that, you know, one day this strait, Bosphorus, should be more accessible to blind swimmers, blind surfers or sailors. So people, you know, should be able to see blind people, uh, you know, using boats around. Ustinel lost his sight because of eye cancer, but it never kept him away from the water. He spent summers swimming in the Black Sea, where his grandmother had a house. Now he's 37, and he still loves being on the water. But now he wants to do it on his own terms, to steer his own boat. He remembers a Greek myth he learned back in high school. It's about a blind navigator. And there was this blind king called Phineas, 
and he used to live on the north side of the Bosphorus. His mission was guiding sailors in the dark safely to Black Sea from uh, Mediterranean. So I thought, wow, you know, this guy is cool, so we should continue this tradition. So. <laughs> when he was in college, Ustinel met an American woman who he eventually married. After moving to San Francisco, they started kayaking in a two-person boat, and she would steer. This year, Ustinel won a $25,000 prize for blind or visually impaired adventurers. Now he has the money to buy the right kayak and the instruments he needs. So how do you kayak if you can't see? The first thing is to use your other senses. Ustinel says they're full of information. The direction of the current, smell of the land, plants or flowers, people, construction sounds, cars, the wind. To cross the Bosphorus, Ustinel will have to kayak just three miles. But the strait is one of the busiest shipping channels in the world. The water's dangerously crowded with huge freighters and tankers alongside small ferries and fishing boats. And the currents are strong. So Ustinel needs gadgets that tell him exactly where he is and what's around him. He's been practicing all over, up north in Tamales Bay and in the San Francisco Bay. Today, he's launching on the calm waters of San Francisco's tiny Lake Merced. He rolls a suitcase to the end of the dock and pops it open. Inside, there's a black and yellow kayak, neatly folded up. After inflating the boat, Lucinelle takes his white and red cane and sticks it on the back, like a flagpole. Yeah. What do you want it to say? Like, what, why, why put this out? So, don't run me over. Is it also a pride, or is it mostly just oh, like... Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I'm a blind guy kayaking, you know, raising awareness. Also, you know, symbolic thing. Life jacket? Check. Water shoes? Check. Two backup cell phone batteries? Check. Okay, so now I'm in. Let me see. He pushes off. On the other side of the lake, there's a loud road. Ustinel steers towards the sound. So I'm moving towards the street. And then he pulls out his smartphone. Like all his devices, he has it set to play at double speed for maximum efficiency. Okay, so I'm going to head south. So I will take the street on my right and keep going south. One GPS is on his phone. The other is attached to his kayak, just behind his seat. He calls that one Mr. Beep. It beeps slowly and steadily if Ustinel is on track. And another way if he's drifting. His kayak is powered by foot pedals. That keeps his hands free to work with all his devices. There's a sonar that fishermen use to find fish. Ustinel uses it to scan the water. When he's really in a pinch, Ustinel opens an app on his phone, kind of like Periscope. It connects him to a sighted person, a volunteer who could be anywhere in the world who looks through the camera on his phone and sees for him. Hello? Hello? Hi. I am on a kayak on a lake, and yes. I, w- I want to know what's around me. I hear a street on my right. Can you see the street? Um, no, but... That might just be the contrast. It's very dark. It's very dark? 
because the the uh, lake and the sky are so bright. Uh, oh, okay. There does appear to be something moving there that might be cars. Okay. The tools he's using are prototypes. Ustinel is providing feedback to engineers who will tweak the devices so other people who are blind can use them too. And helping people who are blind is what he does in his day job. He teaches visually impaired students in San Francisco public schools. Today he's working with Ethan, who's 15. Ethan, I have a news for you. So you remember the letter you wrote to the supervisor? Ethan is pushing the city to make an intersection accessible to blind people. We should probably say something like, uh, dear mayor's office on disability personnel, Dear. In part, Ustinel says he teaches because when he was young, he had trouble finding role models. He took whatever he could get, even mythological Greek kings. Now times have changed, and it's much easier to find blind heroes. They're walking around us every day. Or maybe they're kayaking on a nearby lake. Just look for the white-tipped cane jutting out the back. For the California Report, I'm Laura Clivens. demonstration is going on throughout the entire nation, Washington, New York, Denver, here in San Francisco. A new short film explores activism around people with disabilities. It's a documentary called Hale, and it tells the story of Hale Zukas, who helped make Berkeley the birthplace of the disability rights movement. He was diagnosed with cerebral palsy as a kid and then went on to study Russian and math at UC Berkeley in the 1970s. He helped found Berkeley's groundbreaking Center for Independent Living. And there's another UC connection. The film's director, Brad Bailey, made the documentary as his thesis project at Berkeley's Journalism School, which is my alma mater, too. He just picked up a Student Academy Award for the project, and he joins us now. Hey there, Brad. Congrats on your Student Academy Award. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So one of the challenges of making this film, I imagine, is that your subject can't speak. When he talks to you, he uses a pointer, which is attached to a kind of helmet, to point to words on a board. Let's play a clip. Do. You. Water. To talk. Yes. Yes, I do. What did you do to make sure Hale had a voice in this film? That was our particular challenge with this film. How do you communicate the brilliance and wittiness and insight of a man who who can't physically communicate himself? One of the great things I had to go through was my own transformation. Through my filming with Hale... I learned patience. I learned to be able to sit down and to to be able to listen. And so I want to sort of show in 20 minutes what I went through in six months. And that was my goal with the viewer, for them to sort of see him in the beginning as he wakes up in the morning. And, and whatever preconceptions they have about people, you know, with disabilities, I want to obliterate that. You got really intimate access to him. You were there when he woke up in the morning. You watched his caretaker get him out of bed. You followed him at night to a comedy show. You even put a camera on his wheelchair. <laughs> How did you negotiate that access, build that kind of trust with him? He's, you know, he's been a silent hero for all these years, and I really think you know, it's about time people know who he is. His goal was to, was to build a world and, and an infrastructure where he could move around independently, and now he's benefiting from the fruits of that labor. So to him, I don't think it's about the accolades. I just think he realizes 
that it's time for him to continue advocating for people. And I think that's why he allowed me to do this story. He knows that it would help, in a sense, continue that advocacy and continue to show uh, what people with disabilities were capable of. The film really unpacks California and the Bay Area's role in the disability rights movement, both in terms of activism from UC Berkeley students with disabilities to protests that brought about federal protections for people with disabilities back in the 1970s. I want to play a clip from Judy Human, who's a disability rights activist that went on to serve in the Obama administration and appears in your film. No one defined a movie theater where they said you had to get out of your wheelchair as discrimination. No one defined a bus that wasn't accessible or a train that wasn't accessible as discrimination. And even if you you applied for a job and clearly didn't get that job because of disability, it still wasn't being called discrimination. Judy Heumann and Ed Roberts were the mouthpiece of the movement, but Hale was the war course. You know, he was going to those commission meetings, getting things done. He started writing advocacy papers and policy papers from the early 1970s. You know, he was instrumental in the first aid and attendant bill, which allowed people who had attendance, they allowed them sort of the freedom for the first time to be able to actually hire and fire their own attendants. And that was almost unheard of. He was one of those people that dealt with the nuts and bolts of advocacy and the nuts and bolts of policy. Uh, When you look at, for example, the San Francisco BART system, Hale was the one that they consulted to be able to design it. He had an input, a direct input into the height, the location, the details that most people wouldn't even think about. But in your wheelchair, they're crucial. And what's so great about this is that San Francisco was also used as a model worldwide for, for, for transit accessibility. Yet when those elevators go out, it can be really trying. I mean, one of the best scenes in the film is when Hale is trying to get to a meeting and he goes to the elevator, gets off the BART train, and the elevator's out of service. You know, we didn't expect it. It was a moment that is is unfortunate in a sense, but it's also, I think, important to show that this happens every single day, not just in San Francisco, but all over the country, that, you know, when an elevator is out for, for you and me that can just sort of walk and go up the stairs or, or walk a few blocks, for other people, it's a big deal. And we were 40 minutes late to what's ironic, to the Transit Accessibility Board meeting. And what's so great about Hale is that he was able to relate that specifically to the people that make those decisions. And I think as a result of that, some changes were, were made, um, you know, with regard to messaging, I think, in the San Francisco BART system. And again, that's because of Hale. Even 40 years later, he is still out there advocating for people. Brad Bailey, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Sasha. It was great meeting you. Brad Bailey is the director of Hale, a documentary short about disability rights pioneer Hale Zukas. The film just won a Student Academy Award, and it's playing in festivals across the country. And here's another story about a family living with disability. This one about an immigrant family with a child named Kevin, who has cerebral palsy. We introduced you to them a few months ago. His mother was struggling to get him to physical therapy because his father had been arrested by immigration agents. Before, my husband used to ask for time off on the days my son had therapy so he could help me. The dad's name is MacGyver. He's named after the guy in the TV show, MacGyver. He's from Guatemala. He's 27 and undocumented. He was held in a jail in the Bay Area city of Richmond. 
Now, McGeeber has no serious or violent criminal history. In the past, someone like him probably would have been released within a month or two on bond. But McGeeber spent over half a year in detention before he got his day in court. KQED's Julie Small brings us this update on his story. Let me start here, at the immigration court in San Francisco. About 40 people are holding signs and chanting for McGeeber's release. They came to support his wife, Gibi, who is eight and a half months pregnant, and the kids, who were all born in the U.S. Volunteers take turns pushing nine-year-old Kevin in his wheelchair. Gibi wants the judge to see how much the children need McGeeber and let him out. I feel anxious, nervous, but I have faith that everything's going to come out okay. McGeeber's attorney, Lisa Knox, says her client was deported once before when he was about 18. They say someone who's in his situation who's already been ordered removed doesn't ever have a right to a bond hearing. But she's here to argue that under a decision by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, the government can release McGeeber from jail because he's been detained for more than six months and isn't a threat. Some of these supporters are taking a risk going into the courthouse. They're undocumented, and this building is also the local headquarters for ICE. Security's tight. I'm not allowed to record inside. So let me tell you what happens. We get inside the courtroom, and McGeeber isn't even there. He's on a television screen, connected by video feed to a cinderblock holding cell in the Richmond jail just across the bay. He shifts uncomfortably in his yellow jumpsuit. The family hasn't seen McGeeber for seven months. The youngest kids, Christopher and Gabby, wave and call out to their daddy. But he can't see them or hear them until the judge asks her clerk to pan the courtroom camera over to the children. McGeeber's face lights up and he greets them. Kevin buries his face in his sweatshirt, crying. Attorney Lisa Knox argues that the family needs their father to survive. The judge hesitates, but ultimately sets bail for $3,500, which means McGeeber's getting out. Back outside the courthouse, Kevin is beaming. I'm happy. Yeah. Was it good to see your dad? Yeah. McGeeber returns home just days before GB gives birth to a baby girl. They name her Yareli Esperanza. Her middle name means hope. We visit the family at home a few weeks later. GB pulls a couple of plastic chairs to the kitchen table and calls for her husband to join us. This is the first time since we started reporting this story in February that my editor and I actually meet McGeeber. It's a sunny Sunday morning, and the kids are climbing all over their dad. He helps Kevin and Gabby wrestle open their giant plastic piggy banks while little Christopher runs in and out of the room. While we talk in the kitchen, McGeeber cradles Yareli in her white cotton onesie and feeds her a bottle. <laughs> he says when he was in jail, he was afraid he would miss her birth. 
I was scared because I saw a lot of people being deported from jail. I thought they could come and deport me at any moment. I'll never see my family again. McGeeber says conditions in the jail were tough. When he got sick, it took days to see medical staff, and they refused to give him medicine. He says the immigrant detainees had to take care of each other and became like a family. The day McGeeber was released, everyone gathered around him. Everyone was sad, but at the same time, they were happy. When it was time to go, everyone came and hugged me. Some were crying, others were laughing. GB says she knows other families in the same situation. The father of a girl at Kevin's school is being detained in that same Richmond jail. It's sad. When you go through something like this, you don't want other people to have to go through it. She says it's better now that McGeeber's home. Kevin's getting out more now. That was a little hard for me when I was alone. And there are four kids now, so McGeeber can watch two and I can watch two. While his father was in jail, Kevin's legs weakened because he wasn't going to physical therapy as often. Now that McGeeber's back, Kevin's getting stronger. Sometimes he takes us to, to the park or to, like, to the store or to walk. For a little bit. Sitting in his kitchen, hugging his kids, McGeeber says the effect on children is what gets lost in the fight over immigration. There are a lot of children living without their dad or their mom because they're deporting a lot of people. It's painful because your child isn't to blame for any of it. It's not their fault that you don't have papers. McGeeber still faces deportation, but immigration courts are so backed up he probably won't get a final hearing on his case for two to three years. For the California Report, I'm Julie Small in Oakland. That story was produced by Tyke Hendricks. In some California communities with roots in Mexico, the last days of October are spent getting ready for Day of the Dead. And that means making altars for loved ones and covering them with marigolds. But those bright orange flowers aren't always easy to find. The California Report's Vanessa Rancaño met a farmer who's growing them in the Central Valley for people longing for a piece of home. With their flashy color and strong perfume, marigolds help spirits find their way back to their families. At least that's one theory about why they're the flor de muerto, the flower of the dead. Antonio Chavez never thought much about why the flowers are so important. He just always knew they were. It's the tradition our grandparents handed down, he says. The flowers are sacred. They're essential for Day of the Dead. Antonio and his parents left Oaxaca a decade ago and missed celebrating like they did back home. So a couple years ago, they started growing marigolds here, in Kerman, a small town outside Fresno. They farm a few acres along a country road, mostly squash and chiles, with a few rows of fiery flowers mixed in. The family just wanted some flowers for their own altar, but people started showing up, hoping to buy. So many people bought flowers, they ran out. This year, Antonio planted more. His family still gets first pick. 
Antonio reaches out to touch a few especially beautiful blooms. On the last day of October, they'll pick these flowers and make big arches out of them to place over the altar. They'll arrange others in the shape of a cross. They'll set out fruits and sweets for Antonio's sister, who died as a child. Tamales and mole for the grandparents who once taught him these traditions. And Antonio says these rituals are especially important now that his hometown in Oaxaca has been abandoned. Antonio's scrolling around in Google Maps, trying to find his village. Life was hard there, he says. No TV, no phones, no money. But he describes it as a beautiful place. It's tucked into a green mountain valley. When he was young, there was a school there and lots of kids. Not anymore. Only the elderly are left because they couldn't make the trip across the border to the U.S. It makes him sad to know that in a few years there won't be anyone left in the town. But Antonio Chavez says growing these marigolds makes him feel like he's sharing the spirit of the place with his fellow immigrants. Everything has changed, he says, but we haven't. We haven't changed who we are. For the California Report, I'm Vanessa Rancaño in Kerman. A lot of us Californians like to hit the open road, explore miles of highway, or venture off into some back roads. Sometimes we come across towns with some pretty bizarre and surprising names. So today, we're launching a new series. A place called... What? 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 Goma? What? Starting route to Isaacs. Head north on Bryant Street. The first installment of a place called What? takes us to Zyzix. That's spelled Z-Z-Y-Z-X. If you're driving on I-15 near Death Valley, you might spot the sign. You won't find any shops or restaurants or even houses there, but you will find the Desert Studies Center, a research station operated by a consortium of seven California state universities. Rob Fulton manages the center. He's the only permanent resident in Zyzix. We called him up and found out a radio preacher named Dr. Curtis Springer named the town in the 1940s. Back then, Zyzix was home to his mineral springs and health spa. Hello, folks. Your old friend Curtis Springer coming to you with a quarter hour of facts about life and how to live it as we answer your questions from Zyzix Mineral Springs. Way out here in the heart of the great Mojave Desert of California. The story goes, whenever he would have discussions with others about matters of politics or religion, he always insisted on having the last word. And I think he thought it clever to invent the last word and then use it uh, for the name of his mineral spring. He would say things like, come to Zizek's Mineral Springs, the last word in health. There's this whole mythology about this being a ghost town and creepy stories about Doc Springer and... Don't believe everything you hear on the Internet when you Google that. <laughs> it's amazing the stuff I see up there. I've lived here a little over 31 years. Yeah, I'm the only permanent resident. It can be lonely at times. It can be exciting at times. It can be frustrating. <laughs> it could be all day. No two days alike, certainly. We just get used to long distances out here. Everything's distant from us. So the nearest town that has a grocery store is Barstow. That's a, an hour away. If I need something else that Barstow doesn't have, I go to Victorville. That's uh, 100 miles away. 
it's a little bit of an inconvenience, but I'm so used to it at this point. And it gives me some time to listen to the radio and think other things while I'm driving. So, And, you know, when I go back to suburbia now, <laughs> I really don't feel comfortable. I mean, it's like it's, I grew up in this, but I don't relate to it anymore. That's kind of weird. Bianca Taylor produced that interview with Rob Fulton, who lives and works at the Desert Study Center, the only thing standing in the town of Zizek's. Head to CaliforniaReport.org to check out photos. And while you're there, write us a comment with your idea for another California place with an unusual name you'd like to hear about. Or send us an email at CalReport at KQED.org. And that's the California Report magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director this week is Laura Clivens. Our technical producer is Seal Muller, with additional engineering from Danny Bringer and Rob Spate. Victoria Maulion is our senior editor. Special thanks this week to Juan Gonzalez. The California Report's editorial team includes Susie Racho, Nina Thorson, Bianca Taylor, David Marks, Carrie Feibel, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Barracuda Networks, cloud-ready firewalls engineered for today's next-generation business networks. Learn more at barracuda.com slash cloudready. The James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected. On the web at theschmidt.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of The Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 